Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Stephen Greenblatt is a literary historian and an expert on Shakespeare. Among his books on Shakespeare are Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare, Shakespearean Negotiations, The Circulation of Social Energy in Renaissance England, Hamlet and Purgatory, Shakespeare's Freedom, and most recently, Tyrant, Shakespeare and Politics, which was set in motion by his feelings about the Trump presidency. I've interviewed Stephen Greenblatt three times for his award-winning bestseller, The Swerve, How the World Became Modern, and a couple of years back for the rise and fall of Adam and Eve. But it was the first interview in 2005, while he was on tour for Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare, that still resonates, and hopefully will resonate for the listeners to this podcast. My guest is Stephen Greenblatt, whose book is Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. Stephen Greenblatt has written several books about Shakespeare. You were a professor here at UC Berkeley, correct? Yes, for a long time. You're also the editor of the Norton Shakespeare. That's right. So you've read every single Shakespeare play dozens of times. I wouldn't say dozens of times for every single one, but I read them all multiple times. Does it ever get tiresome to just keep reading the same ones over? You'd think it would, but it actually doesn't. The plays were actually meant to be inexhaustible and fluid and flexible and constantly renewing themselves and the fantastic things they do. This book is about trying to connect Shakespeare's work with the person of Shakespeare. And I want to start there because I know that if we look at writers today or playwrights. We can see some playwrights whose work clearly reflects who they are. But then we could look at some folks, and while we see certain themes running through it, we don't see the kind of personal one-on-one relationship to their work. So the question is, can we really look at his life and discover that, or is it all kind of a make-believe game? No, I think there actually is a relationship between Shakespeare's life and his works. It's not a relationship that means that you can throw away the works and just get to the thing that really matters, the life. The opposite is the case. What what matters are the works. But if you care about the works, if they've reached you, if they give you pleasure, if they've seized you, then you have a natural desire to know who on earth wrote these things and what did he draw on? Where did he get these things? He didn't get them directly. That's true. He didn't dramatize his life. He has no play about a provincial young man who goes up to the city and makes a success as a playwright. That's not the way he worked. And there are lots of interesting reasons why he didn't work that way. But nonetheless, you can, by working with the records that he left behind, figure out how this happened. One of the things that struck me in reading this, which we never really think about, is the close relationship between the politics of his era and what he was writing, not merely in terms of whether one reflects the other, but also how politics affected art. 
Now, to start with, London was not a big city in our terms. Only had, what, 200,000 inhabitants? Yes, huge by their standards, but not by ours. So half the size of Oakland. Yes. And it was a police state in which there was a secret police, correct? There was a secret police. The only thing to be said is that the police state was often ragged and inefficient. They, they didn't have the quite the technological means that we now have to run a good police state. On the other hand, it's true. There were, it was a world full of spies. You had to worry, for example, about what you'd say in the, in the tavern. There were people in the taverns listening to what people were saying and would report to the authorities and you could get in fantastic trouble. The relationship of, say, political drama and the era. Let's go back a little bit. What was the history of theater up until Shakespeare began writing in England? When Shakespeare was a young man, the principal forms of the theater were popular and local. They were beginning, just beginning in the earliest stages to establish the permanent freestanding playhouses in London. What existed in the time of Shakespeare's parents and also when Shakespeare was a young man were local theater produced by people in the villages and towns. And there were also some theater companies that would travel, spend some time in London, but would be out in the countryside moving from town to town. And those were the principal ways in which people would entertain themselves. But in London itself, when I'm reading the book, I get the sense that eventually what happened in London was kind of like the equivalent of the Broadway theater. You had different theater troops playing, performing, writing their plays, and you came to London to see them. This wasn't the case prior to, say, Marlowe? It had just started to be the case. And, you know, you can have a rather more skeptical and sinister, maybe you should be sinister about Broadway as well, but you can have a slightly skeptical account of how this happened, Richard, because basically the authorities in London wanted to know what was going on in these entertainments. They wanted to control them better, and they could do so by concentrating them in London, setting up a censoring system as they did. You had to show the plays to a censor before they were performed. You had to show them again to a, a censor if you wanted to have them, a different censor if you wanted to have them printed. They wanted to know what was happening. And they didn't want, for example, Catholic groups off in the country to be putting on Catholic plays. They wanted to know what was happening. Which brings up the next issue, which is the actual conflicts of the time. The country was split between Protestants after Henry VIII and Catholics who were constantly intriguing or accused of, of intriguing. Shakespeare was a Catholic. In any Maybe. case, we think he came from a, from a family that had residual loyalties to Catholicism. It's true that what happened was that Henry VIII had made the break with the church over money, basically, over seizing the wealth of the monasteries. But Henry VIII was doctrinally quite conservative, and he was an equal opportunity persecutor. You name it, he persecuted it. But then after he died, there was a kind of wavering back and forth between a, a, a Protestant regime, a Catholic regime, a Protestant regime. And eventually, by the time Shakespeare is born, you have the Queen Elizabeth in power, and she has declared that she's a Protestant. And she doesn't want to look into men's souls. She just wants them to go to church and behave themselves, go to the Protestant services once a week and behave themselves. And whatever they believe, she says she's not going to worry about, except that what starts happening is that there are plots and rumors of plots, and the Pope makes a fatal or a decisive move that turns out to be fatal for a lot of Englishmen. The Pope decided to declare that Elizabeth was a heretic and that anyone who assassinated her would receive a plenary indulgence for the act. There would be no punishment in a spiritual sense for the act. Sort of like a fatwa. A fatwa, exactly. So that the country gets in a state of high alert and tremendous anxiety about the possibility of a terrorist attack on the queen. And in fact, most English Catholics, the vast majority of English Catholics, were astonishingly loyal to the queen, even though they were under tremendous pressure from the administration, but they remained loyal to the regime. This is the 
kind of the era just before Shakespeare came to London and right after he got there. Exactly. Right? We could say that the, the flashpoint was 1588, the year of the Armada, but things had been building up to that event. And then afterwards, it wasn't simply settled. But you have an attempt, after all, in 1588 at a Catholic invasion to overturn the queen and set up a, a new Catholic regime in the country. It fails, thanks to what famously is called the Protestant wind that ruined the Armada's chances. But uh, the country remains in a state of high alert. There's a period in Shakespeare's life early on where he kind of disappears from the scene. And you spe- you use the speculation, I want to say you speculate, that in fact at that particular time he was involved with several Catholic plotters. Now he comes to London, and this is an aside, but there has been a lot of research done on uh, on the real Richard III, and there are those who claim that Shakespeare's Richard III, in fact, was Tudor propaganda, trying to legitimize the Tudor regime. That doesn't make a lot of sense that he would actually do that, change history, in a sense, if he was actually a Catholic. It's slightly more complicated than this in multiple senses. In the first place, what happens is that the great attack on Richard III, and the work on which Shakespeare based his play is by none Sir other than, Moore. than yeah. Thomas More, uh, who was, after all, a saint uh, to this day in the Catholic Church. So it didn't require a abandonment of belief to take this line. This was a line that More used. Nonetheless, I don't want to say that Shakespeare, as you've just put it, was a Catholic. I think Shakespeare actually fairly early on put the distance between himself and full religious commitment, particularly religious commitment in a dangerous sense. He must have gone to church, otherwise his name would have turned up on the record of those who weren't attending Protestant services, and it doesn't turn up there. But I think that quite early on, Shakespeare learned some lesson, and the lesson was, I am not going to end up with my head on a pole. I'm not going to be a martyr for this religion. I'm not actually sympathetic to saints. If you think about Shakespeare's work, he represents everything, Richard. He's fantastically good at getting every type of human being, but one type of human being he doesn't represent in any sympathetic way at all are saints. He doesn't like them. He doesn't trust ideological fanaticism. He doesn't like people who are making absolute claims. And he stays away from a lot of the religious controversy. I mean, he goes back and uses Julius Caesar... (laughs) fairy tale, well, in a sense, with Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm not sure that's not really fairy tale, but fantasy. He does some historical, but it's rarely in the context of the church. He finds sly ways of introducing the church. There are a lot of church men in Shakespeare, a lot of clerics, friars, and so forth. They tend to be sort of bumbling and lovable, the friars. The higher churchmen tend not to be likable. But on the whole, he keeps his distance, or he finds subtle ways. For example, at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, the fairies go tripping through the house where there are the three couples who've just got married and are going to bed, and they say they're going to sprinkle field dew on the bride beds. Well, that's cute, field dew on the bride beds, because the fairies are country spirits. But what is that? The Catholics used to sprinkle holy water on the bride beds, but that uh, custom was called superstitious by the Protestants, so it was uh, it was no longer ex- uh, uh, couldn't be represented. It was no longer practiced. But what Shakespeare does is have fairies sprinkle field dew on the beds. He has it and he doesn't have it. He distances himself and he embraces it. And the audience would know this. Of course, they'd know it. It's kind of the equivalent of say watching something like a movie that references current events. Of course, and it, actually, it's more like what the audience in the GDR or in the Soviet Union would have made of performances that were displaced in time. 
displaced in theme, but everyone understood that it was Brezhnev or Stalin who was being discussed, even though it was Julius Caesar who was on stage. Let's talk for a second about the assassination of Caesar. You go into that a little bit, that there was an English subtext there. For one thing, the country was tremendously anxious about assassination, anxious about high-principled people who would undertake to change everything, to change the course of world history by killing the ruler. So Shakespeare is simply tapping into a very widespread public anxiety about this kind of event. In addition, he is deeply interested at this point in his life, in the 1590s, about the motives that people entertain to persuade themselves, persuade others to do things, to enter into conspiracies, or for that matter, to seize power. What year was the gunpowder plot? The gunpowder plot comes after this. Gunpowder plot is 16.5. So when they were afraid of assassination, it, it eventually they found a plot eventually. Yes, an attempt actually seems to have been for real. I mean, lots of the plots were produced by government provocateur, but in this case, it seems to be, have been a real plot that was an attempt to blow up the king, his family, and the houses of parliament. And what year was Macbeth written? Macbeth was written a couple of years after the gunpowder plot, probably as a gesture, has the gunpowder plot in mind, but not immediately after. Immediately after the king came to power, Shakespeare tried to write a political play, or Shakespeare's company tried to write a political play called The Tragedy of Gowrie that the king hated, and the play doesn't exist any longer. So I think they had to be careful and sort of scout out and figure out what to do with this king, how to entertain him. You bring up a point about things not surviving. Something I didn't know was that there were very few, if any, copies of the full play because everything could be stolen or could disappear. And actors were only given their roles or their scenes. Yes. First of all, paper was expensive. And also making copies was expensive for the obvious reason, no Xerox machines. So that we have a uh, situation in which uh, the actors were given and the way the, the actors rehearsed their parts were simply to be given the parts. That's why they call parts. They were given rolls, that's say rolls of paper on which the parts were written. And they didn't uh, have a copy of the whole play. They didn't probably know the details of the whole play until they came together to have a few rehearsals before performance. So they were fantastically good at quick study and at improvising. We also hear today that question came up, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? And you at some point posit that obviously any playwright would know about a wide variety of things, including what it was like to be a noble, because that's part of what the actor's world is like and what the playwright's world is like. But the question still comes up in terms of the fact that why wouldn't a lot of Shakespeare's company, since Shakespeare was the most famous playwright of his day, why not just say everything was by Shakespeare and kind of like have him vet everything? Well, first of all, I did say a lot of things were by Shakespeare. A lot of plays came out, especially later in his life and in the generation after he died, when he was quite famous already. A lot of plays came out with Shakespeare's name on them that aren't by Shakespeare and that don't appear in the volumes that we now read because his name was a commodity and could be used that way. On the other hand, early in his life, his name isn't attached to plays because the name isn't a commodity. No one cares that this is a play by Shakespeare. And in general, the companies were rather wary about letting their plays circulate while they're still in repertory. Shakespeare is known for these brilliant speeches that all of this came out of one guy. That's so remarkable. Is there any other precedent in history for that? There are other literary geniuses, for sure. It's clear that he was an exceptional genius, had remarkable talent, probably from birth. But he developed that talent, and he also was someone who is very good at ripping off other people. It's not all made up out of the whole cloth. He's a fantastic magpie. Anything that comes his way, he uses. If you read 
Antony and Cleopatra and then read the, the source of Antony and Cleopatra, Plutarch, there are moments in which it's almost embarrassing because he's word simply putting in a blank verse what is already in his source. He liked to do that. What has to be said at the same time is that the fantasy that someone else wrote the plays is for the most part driven, uh, I feel uh, particularly safe saying this on KPFA, by kind of rather depressing class snobbery and fantasies of the importance of an education, that you dream that if only Shakespeare, whoever wrote these plays, if only the person who wrote these plays had the right aristocratic background, the right family connections, had gone to university, that will explain everything. It simply is not true. It doesn't work. Uh, Shakespeare didn't need the university education and he didn't need an aristocratic credential to do what he did. I mean, I teach at universities and I believe in them as enterprises, but Shakespeare would have had three or four or five years of theology education that might or might not have been useful for him, but probably not given what he wrote. You're listening to an interview with Stephen Greenblatt, whose book, Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare, discusses Shakespeare and the relationship of the life of this man to his plays. So I'd like to talk a little about some of the plays and their relationship to who this man was. Macbeth, we discussed, had to do with James I and kind of legitimizing him in a way. Well, yes and no. What's remarkable about Macbeth is not, for me at least, is not that Shakespeare is trying to suck up to James and make him feel good, although he is clearly finding ways of complimenting him and reassuring him. But James is a very strange character, and Shakespeare understood in a way that no one else understood, probably from very careful observation and calculation and craft, that the way to reach James was not simply to compliment him, not simply to reassure him, this very frightened, very complicated and neurotic man whose mother and father had both been killed, but to simultaneously compliment him and scare the bejesus out of him. That was a very complicated move to make. That is to say, Macbeth's a horror story. Macbeth is not about reassurance. Macbeth's about assassination and murder and about witchcraft. To do this to a king who jumped when there were loud noises in the room, that was a very daring and, it turns out, successful strategy. And he stole the witches from another source. He stole, steals everything, but he also makes it better than it ever was before. Uh, there's nothing as good as the witches in Macbeth. And Romeo and Juliet, what of that one? Well, I think Roman Juliet is the great expression in Shakespeare of what it is to long for somebody else sexually, to want desperately to have someone, to, to cross every line that you need to cross of family to get this person that you long for. And I think Shakespeare is, in a way, the greatest poet of courtship, of longing, of making love in the, in the old-fashioned sense of uh, wooing that has ever written. So there's a direct correlation, maybe, between Romeo and Juliet and the sonnets, which were written at a time when he couldn't write plays because of the plague. Not direct correlation, because I think Romeo and Juliet, first of all, grows out of experience that Shakespeare probably had as a quite young man longing for girls, for Anne Hathaway or for others. And then it gets recycled then through later experiences of desire, the desire for the young man in the sonnets, the desire for the dark lady, but those are not desires that can be satisfied, the sonnet desires, in marriage. They can't be realized in a a marriage, but in Romeo and Juliet, the dream is to get married. Is Romeo and Juliet an early example of marriage based on love? Well, it's an early example of a courtship based on love, right. and, and there's an, the dream of a courtship based on love is an old one, even in the times all through the Middle Ages in which virtually no marriages were actually contracted this way, or almost none. What's amazing about Romeo and Juliet is that it got written at all. This is a playwright who began with plays like Taming of the Shrew and Two Gentlemen of Verona, and then he produces a few years later 
this astonishing play. You would never have predicted that he could have done this. That's actually the great cleverness of the sweet movie Shakespeare in Love, to understand that that's a question that you can ask. How did Shakespeare get from being the workmanlike writer of those early plays to being the astonishing, titanic creator of Romeo and Juliet? Now that you've mentioned Shakespeare in Love, and I know that that's one of the origins of why you came to write the book, but let me ask you this, because a lot of people have seen this. Yeah, we know that the Gwyneth Paltrow relationship is pure Hollywood, but putting aside that relationship, how accurate is the entire setting of the film and Stoppard screenplay? None of it is very accurate, uh, that it's playful and imaginative in ways that appeal to us. But it got something of the flavor of the times, the crowded streets, the haranguing preachers, the sense of splendor and poverty, of disease and grandeur mixed together. And above all, it got a sense that I deeply believe in, Richard, which is that it wasn't only the genius with which he was born, and it wasn't only the hard work he must have done sitting in his garret writing over and over again, perfecting his blank verse. It was something about Shakespeare's relationship to the world he lived in that helps to account for what he accomplished. More in the line of Romeo and Juliet and the sonnets, why do we assume that Shakespeare actually might have had a relationship a gay relationship, or that he might have been interested in someone like the Dark Lady just because the sonnets are written. Why couldn't they have been kind of verse plays in a way because he couldn't actually write plays? Why couldn't they be fictions as well? It's entirely possible that they're fictions. But what has always struck people from very early on is that these are virtually uniquely in Shakespeare, the works in which he refers to himself as I, and he refers to himself as Will. It's his name. He uses it again and again in playful ways in the sonnets. That still doesn't mean that it's, uh, that it's Shakespeare. It's obviously naive to think that every time Philip Roth refers to himself as Philip Roth, that you're getting the direct transcript of his actual life. And I don't imagine that the sonnets are a direct transcript of Shakespeare's life, but they seem to push for the only time in Shakespeare's work his own biography very close, apparently, to the surface. Still, I'm sympathetic to your skepticism because in my book which is full of extravagant speculations about Shakespeare's life, the one point in my book in which I'm rather cautious about speculation is in the sonnets because I think they're precisely designed by virtue of apparently being first person and pushing his life up to the surface. They're designed to, to trick you, to conceal what you would most need to know if you wanted to understand these relationships. Which is why it's all speculation at this point. It, it's certainly speculation at this point, but much is speculation in this life at this point. But look, this is a person who lived 400 years ago who left some traces of himself, but not all the traces that we'd like. As we're talking, it occurred to me that most playwrights, novelists, artists, there's some work that suddenly makes them really well-known and pushes them above the others. Now, I know that one of the problems with Shakespeare is that as he became famous, his entire set of playwrights, all for various reasons, died, and he was one of the last remaining ones, if not the last. But still the question comes up, was there a particular play that took the public by storm and suddenly made Shakespeare Shakespeare? Or was it gradual? It was right away, actually. Shakespeare came on the scene, an unknown without the proper university education, without connections, and he wrote 306 plays. These are not plays that we now think are among his best, far from it. But the representation of 
English history, of English medieval history, and especially of the figure of a military hero named Talbot, apparently seized people. And, and there's a, there are interesting records of thousands of people coming to the theater weeping at Talbot's death. That's amazing. That happened very, very early. Likewise, we know from an attack on Shakespeare quite early, 1593, I think it is, by Robert Greene, that the local talent, the other playwrights who must at first have thought that Shakespeare was a country bumpkin, a rube, are beginning to get worried because Green writes to his fellow university-educated playwrights, watch out, watch out for him, beware, beware of this upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. He says he's, he's wearing our feathers, he's taking, stealing our thunder, wearing our clothes, and is making himself the principal playwright of the country. Is it possible that those kinds of attacks prompted Shakespeare to make Green the butt of the jokes in the Henry Fourth? I think that Shakespeare did something more surprising. I think there are lots of references in the low-life tavern scenes to the people who Shakespeare was also hanging out with in those taverns, to Nash and Watson and Peel and Lodge. But Green, he, who, was the, who was the most extravagant, the wildest, the most bohemian of this lot, Shakespeare does something unexpected. He not only makes fun of him, but he also makes him into Falstaff, the greatest comic creation in Shakespeare's entire work. And that's an act of generosity as well as an act of comedy that we couldn't have expected. As playwrights, artists get older, they need to either reinvent themselves or sometimes they just fall into the trap of going over old material. They don't stay fresh. Shakespeare pretty much did, or is it that because we only remember the famous plays, the better-known plays, that we forget about the ones that might be more hack work, like, say, Merry Wives of Windsor? Well, I don't think so, Richard. I think what happens, first of all, the play, many of the plays that we don't think of a lot, that we don't do, are interesting not because they are weak, not because they rehearse old work, but because they're experimenting with new things that Shakespeare that didn't work out for Shakespeare very well. Let's say what's fascinating about Shakespeare in the context that uh, you pose is that Shakespeare does actually rehearse the same obsessive themes over and over again. This is a person who wrote Othello and then decided a few years later to write The Winter's Tale. It's the same play, basically. It's the same play with some small changes in the plot element. He loved that kind of plot. He decided, all right, I'll do it again. I'll do it slightly differently. He never is reluctant to come back. And if you read the very earliest plays, play like Comedy of Errors, you see that 10 years, 20 years, 25 years later, Shakespeare is thinking of the same themes. That said, there is a moment in Shakespeare's life in which he does something that no one could have predicted. He turns a corner. He does something that revolutionizes his own writing. And that's the moment at which he writes Hamlet. It's astonishing, then, that here was a guy who, I mean, if you look at his career, at least as the way you describe it, Stephen Greenblatt, came in, took everything by, by storm, much like a lot of artists, gradually got more and more conservative as he became more and more famous, not in terms of his art, but in terms of his life. He bought property. He was fairly cheap. Yes, his personal life is not a record of a wild and crazy guy. What's astonishing about Shakespeare is not only did he stretch, but he kept up the quality and improved the quality. And Hamlet was a turning point because after that, it was like he could do no wrong. It's not that he could do no wrong. He wrote some plays that we don't think are so astonishing after Hamlet. But what is remarkable is that he started to write plays that you could never have predicted, even with the greatest admiration in the world for Richard III or for Julius Caesar or for Romeo and Juliet, he wrote plays you couldn't have imagined him writing. Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth. How could he have done this? And the pattern that I think emerges for all of those plays 
is an interesting one. With Hamlet, he discovers something. It's a very strange discovery and one we might not have predicted. He looks at his source and he tries to figure out what is the crucial explanatory element in my source? What is the element that makes it all make sense? And then he throws it away. And then he works from that. What happens if he throws it away? That is an amazing achievement. And of course, that it shouldn't produce incoherence, but should produce masterpieces, that's astonishing. Can you go further? Give me some examples of that. Sure. He he has a great story in Hamlet, which he takes over from the Medieval Chronicle version, uh, and then he takes over from the French adaptation of the Medieval Chronicle version. It goes like this. Two brothers, one is king, one is envious of his brother, and the envious brother kills the king publicly. king who's been killed has a son, Hamlet, and that son will be expected in this world, Scandinavian world of revenge, will be expected to avenge his father's murder, of course. And therefore, it's equally expected that the uncle will kill the son. Why not? The son is a kid. So the son has to figure out how he's going to survive long enough to be able to exact vengeance on his father's murderer. And what he does is to pretend he's mad. He starts drooling. He, it doesn't make sense. He says crazy things. He becomes a figure of mockery and fun in the court, and therefore he's allowed to live long enough to take that revenge. What he does is to sit in the corner and whittle little little sticks, make little hooks with the, with the sticks, and everyone laughs at him. And then it turns out it's those hooks that he's been uh, whittling that he uses to trap the whole court under a net and kill them all. Okay, it's a great story. Shakespeare takes that, which makes perfect sense, and he ruins it by having the murder be a secret murder, by having the murder revealed to the son by a ghost. So the, only the son, Hamlet, knows that, that the father wasn't stung by a serpent in the garden, but was killed by the uncle. And then, having done that, Shakespeare makes the crazy move of having Hamlet pretend he's mad. It makes total sense in the source, but in the version that Shakespeare writes, it doesn't make any sense at all that Hamlet pretends he's mad except that, of course, it's the linchpin on which Hamlet's psychology is built. The Tempest, which was the last play that he wrote by himself, apparently, is about a father-daughter relationship. And by that point, his son had died. He didn't seem to have much use for Anne Hathaway uh, in his will. He left her the second best bed. Yes, which not, not very sweet. <laughs> not much. But he did have a close relationship with her da- his daughter and her family one of his daughters and her family. There were two daughters. There are two daughters, Judith, who marries someone he clearly doesn't like and doesn't trust, and he treats rather negligently in the will, and Susanna, who marries someone he does like and who has a daughter, Elizabeth, and it's clear that Shakespeare is very deeply invested in that daughter. And that this relationship parallels in some ways the relationship in The Tempest. Well, it's very striking that in three of Shakespeare's last plays, he comes back to that father-daughter relationship and thinks through it deeply even thinking about incest issues, thinking about intensity of identification and love for a a father of a daughter. How old was Shakespeare when he died? 52. He had retired not that long (laughs) before after writing a couple of plays in collaboration with others. Do you think if he had lived any longer, he would have come out of retirement? He never had gone completely into retirement. I don't think he would have come out of retirement. I think that he had made very careful plans, laid down careful set of investments, bought annuities, uh, bought land, and expected to live in this house. But it's interesting that he had kept the apartment that he had bought in the Blackfriars uh, area very near the theater. So it's possible that he expected to go back from time to time and participate again in London life. But I don't think he would have returned. Stephen Greenblatt 
When I was in school, I was told that it wasn't until, even though he was very famous, the most famous playwright of his day, uh, he kind of faded a little bit and wasn't given the credit that he later was until, I think, the 17th or 18th century. Is that correct? Not exactly correct, but but close. What happened was that people decided that the plays were outmoded. They were interesting, but they needed to be rewritten. They needed to be given good endings and uh, more exciting developments. So that what happened was, for example, King Lear was performed for a very long time with a happy ending, with Cordelia living and marrying Edgar, with Lear being happy in the restoration of everything and because the that story that Shakespeare told seemed too dark and depressing for everyone so it wasn't really till the late 18th early 19th century that people began to think well we ought to go back and try to perform these plays in the way that Shakespeare seems to have written them and to some extent it was the invention not only of the English but of the Germans the Germans had a tremendous excitement about Shakespeare in the late 18th century and thought uh, that Shakespeare was the great romantic genius they created that cult of Shakespearean genius that the English then subsequently took over. When we're talking about Shakespeare performances, obviously, you know, the actors who perform Shakespeare for Shakespeare, we might have inflated senses of them. We have no idea what they were actually, what their acting was actually like. But we know today that actors have been trained their entire lives and they start taking up on it. Do you think that, say, in the last 50 years, Shakespeare has been better performed than it was even before or going back to Shakespeare's time? This implies that there's a single great way of performing it. I think, on the contrary, that what Shakespeare figured out how to do was to give himself over to the cannibals of the future. He expected to be eaten, digested, re-metabolized by other people. Well, that's assuming that he knew his plays would survive. I think he did know his plays would survive. I think he thought, at the very least, they'd survive in repertory for a long time. And one sign of that is that he characteristically, not always, but he characteristically writes much more than any company needs. That's, that's why the plays are routinely cut. Only Kenneth Branagh and Hamlet decides to do, you know, 12 Four and a half hours, hours of Hamlet. <laughs> uh, most people cut these things. And that's because I think Shakespeare already had anticipated that the plays would be reshaped, refashioned, rethought generation after generation. He didn't maybe anticipate movies and television, but he, he would have if he could. Then to that degree, aside from wanting a piece of the action when the film became a success, he'd be perfectly fine with Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which is cut to, sh- to ribbons. I think he would. I think he would have enjoyed it. And how would he feel about something, I mean, we're speculating yes. beyond speculation, but something like West Side Story, that would say be okay too because it would be using his material. Well, the first thing to say is that Shakespeare's plays in his own times were musical and dance numbers. Shakespeare's plays are full of music and dance, and they also ended with dance. Even the ones that don't have dance in them, like King Lear, let's say, would have ended with the actors brushing themselves off, getting the stage blood off themselves and joining for an elaborate dance. So I think Shakespeare would have found musicals very much in keeping with the kind of training that he himself had had. Stephen Greenblatt, if you're looking at Shakespeare films today, and if you were to recommend a couple which you think best show what Shakespeare can do, name those. And also, do you think it's more important to see it in the theater? I think it's different to see it in the theater. I think Shakespeare works marvelously well on film. I liked very much the Ethan Hawke Hamlet with Bill Murray as Polonius because I liked the way in which that movie understood that you ha- it would be worth experimenting to find new ways of, of reimagining uh, the Shakespearean devices. For example, instead of having someone hide behind an arras, have someone listen to a bug on someone who's been wired, or listen to a message given not by a letter, but on an answering machine. I thought the movie was brilliant at reimagining these devices. In other words, I'm not sympathetic to original instrument versions of these plays. They're for us. They're for our time and place. And I like versions that try to reimagine them that way. So something like Ian McKellen's Richard III, same thing. I liked it a lot. I thought it was somewhat 
one idea scheme. I mean, the focused on on the, uh, Richard III as the as Hitler. But I thought within that parameter, it was marvelous and stylish, wonderful at evoking a sort of 1930s fascist Britain. Or Polanski's Macbeth, which had this overtone of Sharon Tate throughout yes. the whole thing. Yes, it's a little hard to take that movie still. What's the worst Shakespeare film you've seen? Well, I thought Charlton Heston in <laughs> Julius Caesar was pretty ghastly. And I'm not a huge fan of Mel Gibson in that uh, Zeffirelli Hamlet that was done. How about Marlon Brando in the 1953 Julius Caesar doing the method? Yeah, it's not my favorite, I have to say. I thought Marlon uh, Brando did a much more Shakespearean performance than The Godfather. A couple of questions about Julius Caesar. First of all, Julius Caesar, how much did people in Shakespeare's time know about Julius Caesar's assassination and the people involved in it? Well, they would have known something from anyone who had gone to school would have known something about it because they would have been assigned the stories from classical historians in school. So any uh, educated male would have known it, but that would still exclude lots of people. But also there were references, there were other plays being performed, many of which we don't have any longer. But I don't know if you remember that in, in Hamlet, Polonius says that he performed, he played Caesar in school once uh, at university and he was killed. And that suggests a whole set of performances in which the death of Caesar was enacted. So I think people would have known, at least in a general sense, about the story. So it was something that was fairly common at the time. There were different versions of it circulating, and this was kind of a remake. Yes, exactly. Yet at the same time, there was also the political element in there, too, in that political assassination was important in that era because of the secret police. Political assassination and a terrible fear of crowds. Uh, That play is fantastically good in a scary way about what happens when a mob takes the bit between its teeth and runs. Kill him, kill him for his verses, kill Cinna. It's also interesting in that anyone speaks to a mob and the mob turns on what they say. Brutus says something, one thing, and the the mob is happy. And then Antony comes along and wham, it switches around. Well, as I said recently in a little op-ed piece I wrote for the New York Times, it's more that Brutus makes the fundamental risky move of deciding to address the crowd's reason. And Antony makes the, it turns out, fatally clever move to address the combination of greed by giving a kind of tax rebate and addressing their fear. So to that degree, one could argue that there's a certain contemporary feel that Shakespeare picked up on, which is the relationship of thought and emotion to politics. Shakespeare thought about a situation in which you face as a population a tremendous decisive turning point. The deed has been done. Caesar's been assassinated. Now the question is what's going to follow? And you have two people, one of whom uh, tries to explain what's happened and address the crowd's reason, and you have another person who wants fear, chaos, disorder, because it's going to keep him in power for the next appreciable number of years. Which it doesn't really, but... (laughs) Uh, Well, no, no, Antony succeeds uh, for quite a long time, actually. Unfortunately, the demagogic appeal to fear and greed turns out to work in that play. Do you think these plays resonate with each other so that if you, after, say, listening or seeing Julius Caesar, to see something like Macbeth or one of the other historical plays, Henry IV, Part One or Two, or Henry V, that you can see them and resonate and get new things out of each one by doing that? Yes, I think you can actually see lots of recurrent patterns in Shakespeare's life. It's one of the ways I try to work 
in my book to try to see what things he's obsessed with, what things he keeps coming back to again and again, what things he can't get rid of and has to keep returning to. And I think that's true in his life, and I think it's true for us not knowing anything of his life, but simply as spectators and appreciators of the plays. Stephen Greenblatt, now you've written Will in the World and suddenly you're a best-selling author. What do you do next? Do you plan to continue just with Shakespeare or enlarge that or what? I did a rather, for me, strange thing uh, this past year, Richard, which is that I wrote a play in collaboration, fortunately, with a marvelous playwright, Charles Mee. We've tried to reconstitute and write a contemporary version of a lost play, Cardinio, by Shakespeare, and I'm hoping that that will find its way into the world. That brings up another question. How many lost plays of Shakespeare are there? Well, if they're lost, we don't know, but Cardinio was performed and it was even entered to be printed as a Shakespeare play and then didn't make it. I think there probably was another one, The Tragedy of Gowrie, that play that I mentioned before that the king hated and was suppressed. But we don't know for sure that that was written by Shakespeare. Cardinio, when would that have fit in? Toward the end of his life. He was reading Don Quixote uh, with Fletcher at the end of his life and was taking something from that. So there might be one great lost play from the peak of his powers. Yes, I think so. You've been listening to an interview with Stephen Greenblatt, whose book is Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.